0: in a series that we've entitled Rediscover Church. And this series is in some ways a bit uh, reductionistic for some. For some, you'll say, why do we need to look at these things? I know why we need to have preaching. I know why we need to have fellowship. I know why I have to be here. I know why we need to baptize people. I know why we need to celebrate communion and and be a part of church membership. Why are these things important? Because again, as I prayed, prayed earlier, that the routine can become rote. And we can lose the substance and the significance of all that we are to be a part of. These are things that God said should be a part of His church. And we should not only do them, but do them with great excitement and great purpose in mind. The second reason why this is important is that we need to recognize that there are people who are ignorant to these things. And I don't say that in a pejorative way, but they just don't know these things. They've come to church. They've come to experience salvation in Christ Jesus. And they're asking the question, what's next? What is uh, my purpose and my role within this new body of believers called the church? And so we want to rediscover these things And in doing so, that we might serve the Lord and honor the Lord in the way that's fitting to Him. So this morning, what I want to do is look at three things. Three things that are what I want to call markers for the journey. And they are baptism, communion, and church membership. Again, things that are altogether routine for those who have been a part of this church for a while. But it's altogether right and good for us to reevaluate and to reconsider, are we doing these things? Are we celebrating these things in the way that God intended for them to be celebrated? And so this morning I want to do so under the heading signpost. Over these last weeks, I have found myself on the interstates more than uh, I usually am. And I find myself become acquainted with those big green signs that litter their way uh, all along the interstate. Those signs that tell us uh, where we are going. They point the direction to where we want to head. They don't just happen once in a blue moon, but they're happening almost every mile. At every exit, we see these signs, and they're telling us, okay, turn here, head there, exit this way, enter this way. But the other thing that these signs do is they tell us where we're at towards our destination. They tell us how much farther we have in our journey. This is how many miles we have to go until we get to where we are heading towards. This morning, I want you to see that God in His providence has placed signposts for us as His followers. Signposts for our journey. And they're signposts, they're checkpoints, they're mile markers for us so that we will know the direction we need to head, They will help us to know and have confidence that we're heading in the right direction, but then also they remind us that our destination is still in front of us, that these things are there for us, for the journey, but at some point our journey will come to an end and it will culminate in us standing face-to-face before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So while on this journey... There are three signposts that I want us to see. The first one this morning I want you to look at is that of baptism. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And this is what we hear. Jesus is about to leave the earth and ascend to heaven. He's going to leave his disciples uh, here on earth to fulfill their ministry. And here is the ministry he's given. Here's the plan of attack that he's laid out for them. Here's what their MO is supposed to be about. Their monus operandi. This is their program. He says this. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples. That is preach the gospel and preach the gospel in such a way that people receive the gospel and become like you, disciples. That's the first imperative. I want you to go and I want you to preach. We talked about that last week. The second imperative that he gives us, the second command is he wants us to baptize them. When we preach to them and they accept the message, the first thing we are to do is to baptize them, which we're going to talk about in a moment, into their relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to do so in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The third thing we are to do is then to teach them to observe all the things that I've commanded them. And then we are given this process, and behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. So signpost number one that I want us to see this morning is that you and I have been commanded by God as followers of Jesus Christ, the first command. Notice in the text, there's lots of things we need to teach disciples of what God and what Jesus Christ have commanded us to do. But we are set apart this one act to believe and be baptized. The first mile marker, the first signpost for every person who has bowed the knee to Jesus is to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now the reason why we need to rediscover this is because in evangelical churches like Village, sometime about a hundred years ago, the practice became that you didn't believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized, as the book of Acts says over and over and over again. But a time of separation began where you would believe and you would live for some period of time before you were baptized. Baptized. And what I'm here to tell you this morning with all grace and humility is that if that's your impression, you're wrong. If that's your idea that you can believe, live your life for a long while, and then at some later point in life make a decision, well then I'm going to be baptized as as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are out of step of what the Bible says. Here's why. Number one, it is commanded by God god for us to do this it's commanded by god for us to do this this is the number one command we are given it is the first command that we are given as followers of jesus christ number two it is practiced it is practiced by both jesus and the apostles all the apostles were baptized And yes, even Jesus was baptized. In Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus fulfilling this practice. And in Matthew chapter 3, he heads down to the Jordan River, and he's going to be baptized by his cousin John. John sees him coming, and he says, wait a minute, let's flip this around. You should be baptizing me, Jesus, not me baptizing you now notice what it says in matthew chapter 3 then jesus came from galilee to jordan to be baptized by john but john tried to deter jesus saying i need to be baptized by you jesus and do you come to me now notice what jesus replies in the text he says let it be so now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the perfect God-man. Jesus is righteousness personified. I mean, there's no one righteous except for Jesus. So why does he have to fulfill righteousness? The only way that we can understand this, and scholars uh, agree with this sentiment, is this, that what Jesus is saying is, I was commanded by my Father to do this. That's why we're doing this. I had been given marching orders that I was to come to earth, put on flesh, make my dwelling here, and I was to do some things of which would culminate in me going to the cross. I was to preach. I was to do miracles. I was to do other signs and wonders. I was to come and redeem man to myself. And in his to-do list was that he was to be baptized. And he says, I am fulfilling, I'm doing what I was told to do. Now let's stop for a moment, and we let's reconsider or rediscover our relationship with Jesus Christ. We bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. What you're not going to hear me say is that you need to be baptized to be saved. You are saved. You bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. You confessed your sins. You trusted by faith, and you repented to live differently. And as a result of that, you are saved. And the first of your marching orders is to be baptized. And in your delay, my friends, and I'm speaking to those who are saved, who are not baptized. In your delay, whether knowingly or unknowingly, you are saying to God, I hear your first thing, but it's not that important. I hear your first command, but I'm going to do something else. I want you to consider that you're on a job for the very first time and you're like, okay, boss, what do I need to do to make sure I have a long tenure at this, at this place, at this facility? And the boss says, this is the one thing. And you say, you know what, what's the other thing? Your boss isn't going to be very happy. Your boss is going to be displeased. And I think, sadly, our Heavenly Father is displeased with some of us because we've said the one first thing that you've laid out for me, I'm not going to do, or I'm going to come up with an excuse, or I'm not going to make an important thing. And so we have, just as every evangelical church does, countless people who aren't baptized who profess to be believers. Believers. Now, this was not the practice of the apostles in the book of Acts. If you see the book of Acts, you will see over and over again, a person would believe and a person would be baptized. And here's the thing that you need to see. There seems to be no time distance between the two. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn there for a moment, in Acts chapter 2, we have the day of Pentecost. This is now 10 days after Jesus has laid forth the Great Commission. In Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of Almighty God falls upon the disciples creates a commotion, a commotion that the people in the street are now aware of. Peter and the disciples go out into the street, and what do they do? They do what they were told to do, to preach the gospel. So Peter stands up, and he preaches the gospel. And he finishes the preaching of the gospel with this claim, verse 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, when they heard this, that's the people, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What are we supposed to do when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? What's our response? Notice what Peter says to them, verse 38. Repent, that is, confess your sins and believe in Jesus and be baptized, every one of you. See, some of us don't like the connection that's being made there. What it is, is that the next thing you need to do on your journey is that you believe and are baptized. It doesn't say, notice, it doesn't say, repent and be baptized, every one of you who's an extrovert, every one of you who has a good testimony, every one of you who brought some dry clothes... Every one of you whose families are going to be okay with this. Every one of you who feel you can speak well uh, with public speaking. It says repent and be baptized, every one of you. And it says this is how we go about seeing and fulfilling the forgiveness of our sins and the reception of the Holy Spirit. What saves you? Faith and trust in Jesus Christ. What is the first mile marker for every believer? It is baptism now what makes baptism so important and we see it and you can just read through the book of acts and and you will see in the book of acts how important this is that it was done so quickly in acts chapter 8 we've got uh, an ethiopian eunuch who uh, trusts in christ and believes in christ and sees some water and says i need to be baptized And they stop the chariot, and they go down to the water, and he's baptized. In Acts chapter 16, we have two events that take place. Lydia is a woman who is cut to the heart after hearing Paul's message of the gospel, and she believes, and it says before she went home, she was baptized. She didn't have to think about it. She didn't have to uh, assess a time that would be right for her. She didn't even have time to go and tell anybody about her salvation. She was baptized then and there. In Acts chapter 16, a little later on, we've got Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. An earthquake takes place and the jailer believes everybody is gone. But Paul and Silas say, we're all here. And he wonders, why would prisoners stay When they could have left, and Paul says, we're believers in Christ, and he preaches the gospel. And the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31 says, what must I do to be saved? How do I get what you've got? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You, and not just you, but your entire household. Every one of you can receive this salvation. And it says, in the middle of the night, they were baptized. They didn't wait for the next Lord's Day. They didn't wait for morning to come. They didn't wait to go get clothes. They did that baptism right then and there. And the reason why is it's important. Well, why is it so important? It's symbolism and it's significance. Let's look at the symbolism. First of all, baptism, again, doesn't save. But it symbolizes it pictures what happened in salvation. So let's just speak to this for a moment. A couple of things you need to know about baptism. In every reference of baptism in the scriptures, there's a couple truths that I want you to know. Number one, they are all done by people who first profess salvation in Christ Jesus. Nowhere do we explicitly have a child being baptized, an infant being baptized, who hasn't professed first faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's a tradition that came on uh, hundreds of years after Jesus. And it came for a variety of reasons. And if you want to learn more, come to my Equipping You class tonight. You'll learn a little bit more about it. The second thing that we need to understand is, in every... every, Example of baptism in the New Testament. People went down into a body of water, were placed under the water, and brought out from the water. There wasn't sprinkling. There wasn't just saying words and having a dry baptism it was the immersion of an individual into water coming in and out of water why because the water symbolizes a couple things first of all it symbolizes us dying with Christ going into the tomb with Christ underwater and coming out raised as Jesus was from the grave it's a powerful example of that it's so powerful that the way our church is set up, we want to make sure of it, we've got cameras for you to see that. We're like, we don't want to miss that. We don't want you to see that in, in our expression here because it's hard to see. Well, so-and-so went under the ground and then came out of the ground. We want you to see they're going into the water as Christ went into the grave and they're coming out as Christ was resurrected from the grave. Also, the submersing of an individual gives the idea or the picture of total cleansing. We went into into salvation dirty and we came out after salvation clean. And so it's this picture of the water signifying the immersion of us into Christ going in dirty and now coming out clean. Now some of you who are probably a bit offended by this saying you're getting too close to home. I am a professor of uh, Christ Jesus. I've confessed him as Lord. Why do I need to go through this? I I don't like being in front of people. I have anxiety. I, I am more introverted. Or you know what? Listen, I just don't think it's all that important because here's the thing. The thief on the cross, he didn't do it. Well, listen to me. If you trusted Christ as your savior while nailed to a cross next to Jesus, I'll give you a pass on this sermon. Okay, but for all others, the practice is to be baptized now you ask why well uh, some years ago a couple decades ago Amanda and I stood right here and uh, we uh, attested to our love for one another at our wedding there were 300 people here and and we made vows now why did we need to make those vows in front of people couldn't we have simply just said as we had numerous times before I love you and I'm committed to you and she said likewise to me But we didn't. We made vows, and we made public vows, and we didn't stop there. When the preacher said, okay, we're going to do these vows, after that, he asked the question, are there rings to signify these vows? Some of you think it's a miracle I got this thing off my, my finger, right? Amen. Okay. Are there rings to symbolize them? Now, again, the ring isn't all that significant. But what it is, is it's a physical expression of what has happened on the inside of Amanda and I. What would you have done if I said this? I'm standing here. Are there rings to symbolize these? vows? Listen, preacher. She's just going to have to take my word for it. Because I'm not going to go the rest of my life carrying around a symbol of what I've done. She just needs to know that. No. I need this for myself as a reminder, and I need the world to know that I am connected to an individual. I am committed to an individual. And what Jesus has said is, the ring to our relationship with Him is baptism. And Jesus is sitting there, and I gotta wonder if He's saying, why can't you publicly tell the world you're committed to me? What's keeping you from publicly doing that? And if you've got a good reason and you can stand before the Lord, I'll leave it at that. But the Bible tells us that this is the first command He's given. And right from the get-go, we're already saying, yeah, you know what? I've got a different plan. So can I lovingly and as graciously and humbly as I can admonish you to recognize that this is an important matter So important Jesus did it. So important that the apostles did it again and again and again that you and I would commit to being baptized as well. And then as soon as possible, we would be baptized. Now we have classes every month to explain these things and to communicate these so they're done in an orderly way. But this is something we need to rediscover Because my, and I don't know, and I have no list of who's baptized and who's not in our church, okay, other than the members, which is a requirement. But I've seen studies that have said in the evangelical church, more than 50% of the people that attend have never been baptized. So here's a group of people that say, I love Jesus, I want to do what he says, I want to follow his commands, and the first thing he says, you're like, yeah, no way. I'm not going to do it or I'm not even going to think about it, or I'm going to delay it. And I want you to ask this question. If you're a parent, this will help even more. How do you feel when your children say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks? And could we be doing the same thing to our Lord and Savior, the very one we say we should be following? Signpost number two, communion. Communion. What does that signpost say? That signpost says, I publicly commune with other Christians. So the next thing Jesus commands his disciples to do was to proclaim his death until he comes. Something we will do at the end of this service here in in some moments. But let's understand a couple things about it. First of all, its meaning. What's its real meaning? It is an ordinance, just like baptism is. That is, it's a command of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus said, until I come, I want you to often eat bread and drink juice and do so remembering me. And so if we don't do it, we are not fulfilling the command, the obligation that He's given to us. Now, we need to be careful with both baptism and communion not to elevate them. Let's think about it for a moment. Baptism is us getting into water. We do that every day. We get underwater all the time. We get into swimming pools. We get into bathtubs. This isn't something that's altogether crazy different that we've never experienced before. Eating bread and drinking juice was a staple in, it was wine then, a staple in first century Palestine. Us eating bread and drinking juices is is nothing crazy. And that can make it all the more more routine and rote. If it was something that we only ate and only drank at this event, at this moment, it would change things. But I think the reason why God uses water, juice and wine and bread is because He didn't want us to do what we already do with these things and that is to elevate them to make them something that they're not. So we take this bread and this juice, and in some traditions of faith, the priest says some things. The priest does some things. And the things that taste like bread and taste like wine, the priest tells you, no, they're no longer bread or wine. Because of my word, they become the actual body and blood of Jesus. I've transformed them. And while the external elements haven't changed, what they've really become is something altogether different. Brothers and sisters, understand this. The Bible makes it clear this thing isn't the big deal. It's what this thing symbolizes. And we altogether miss it when we make communion about the bread and the wine or the juice instead of making it about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is a tool. This is something that helps us to remember Jesus. So he says, I want you to take bread and I want you to take juice and here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this so you don't forget me. Why? Because Jesus knew his disciples would be prone to forget him. We would be prone to forget his sacrifice. We'd be prone to forgive his, or forget his grace. And so he says, I want you often, he doesn't dictate how often, but he says often enough that it's a common occurrence that you take some bread, you take some drink, and you dedicate it to my remembrance so that you don't forget me because let's just face it, this week we, we forgot Jesus. We forgot him at work, we forgot him at play, we forgot him at school, we forgot him in our comings and goings. And Jesus says when the people gather from time to time, I want you to pick up these things and I want you to take some real time and real energy and I want you to devote it to remembering what I did. Well, who gets to take it? Who's invited to take it? Well, the Bible makes it clear that these things have requirements to them so let's talk about some requirements in your bulletin is an insert that talks about the requirements of baptism and those are i'm sorry of, of communion and those are there every time we celebrate because we don't want someone just to come in and to be a part of this and say oh okay they're offering snacks this flight has snacks this is nice i think we could do a little better than this but this isn't a snack This is a tool to remember what Jesus has done. And it's for a certain person. Requirement number one, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You're like, well, why wouldn't Jesus just invite anybody? Because he says the purpose of this isn't for everybody. And in some ways, it would be disingenuous for anybody just to take these things. And here's why. Incumbent within receiving this is the realization that Jesus is more than anybody else in this world. That Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did on our behalf. And in us taking it, we are pledging allegiance to that fact and to that truth. So let's talk about the Pledge of Allegiance. When we stand as Americans and pledge our allegiance to the flag, will we expect other people to do the same thing from other lands? The answer is no. Why would we do that? Why would we force upon them to pledge allegiance to a foreign flag? And the reason why is we would not want to be put in that place where we are pledging allegiance to a foreign flag that isn't our own. Brothers and sisters, never forget when we take communion. Uh, Maybe the best illustration I can give for us as Americans is we're pledging allegiance to Jesus. And if Jesus isn't our Lord, what we would ask people to do is respectfully observe, but not participate. It's not your pledge. It's not your Lord. And so we're not expecting you to do that. Because we're not expecting you to believe the way we do. So if you are not a believer here during this time of communion, we would ask for you just to observe. Ask questions and be respectful as we pledge our allegiance to our Lord. The second thing is, and this will come as maybe a shock to some of you, is that as elders we say the second requirement is that you've been baptized as a believer. That you've been baptized as a believer. And and you're like, well, why? Well, this was the second command Jesus gave. And if we haven't fulfilled the first one, shouldn't we start with the first one before we do the second one? And here's the reason why the third one is that we examine our hearts to make sure that there's not any known, unconfessed sin in our lives. That we don't just come and say, Yeah, I, I can do it, I'm good. And I'm just going to approach this casually. The Bible says a man ought to examine himself because what we are participating in is something altogether holy. So we should make sure that we're coming in with clean hands and a clean heart, fully recognized we'll never approach communion perfect. We need to confess any known sins. Well, listen, if we can't get past baptism as an act of disobedience, Jesus has said I want you to be baptized and commanding you to be baptized and we're like well no but I'm going to hang out with Jesus and commune with him it doesn't work and so the elders have said while the Bible doesn't say you must be baptized to celebrate communion it is clear through the writings of scripture that God intended baptism as that rite of initiation so that you might participate in the full communion of who God is and what he's all about And finally, the fourth requirement, which is in that insert as well, is that we have to examine our horizontal relationships and ask the question, do I have anybody who is offended with me? Have I offended them in any way? And Matthew chapter 5 says that if I'm worshiping and I know that I've offended my brother, I'm going to leave my gift at the altar, go make rites, and then come back and worship. And so every time we gather together, there's always a moment of examination. And those are the moments we should be examining. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Have I obeyed Jesus in the initial act of obedience being baptism? Am I right with God? Is there any unknown sin that I need to confess? And is there any sin that I have living within me between another brother or sister? I'm gonna go address that. And then the Bible says, if that's all been examined then we should come and we should commune. Now, it doesn't mean that we just sit there and say, well, every time I go, there's, I've got an issue so I can never participate. We want to participate. We want to be able to be a part of it. And so we're doing everything in our power to do it right. Now, here's why we've got to do this. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that there were people that were sick and dying because they had treated communion as an unholy thing so we need to know and recognize this is serious business. And to rediscover the great spiritual element that comes with communion that we have maybe made altogether a casual thing. What does communion do? There, there's a reward for no other better word. There's a reward for it. Um, first of all, it should encourage us Every time we remember Jesus, we remember His grace. We remember His mercy for us. We're going to sing at the end of this uh, um, service. Your mercy is more. My sins, they are many. Your mercies are more. We remember that. We remember the cross. But it should excite us as well because the Bible says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until, help me out, He comes. He's coming back. He's coming back to take us to be in a place that he has prepared for us. That should be exciting so we remember not only what Christ did on the cross, but his promise that he will never leave us or forsake us, and he's coming back to take us to be with him forever. What a sweet time for us to do this and to do this as the people of God. Final signpost, and I'll close, and I won't take too long on this, is membership, church membership. And this is where I publicly connect with a church. We spent a lot of time a couple weeks ago on the sermon about why we should gather. This is why we should be connected. Have you said of this church in a public way, in a significant way, at some point in your life that you have said in the company of other people, I want to be counted among you. I want to identify with you. I want to identify with your pursuits and your purposes. I'm in agreement with your teaching. I'm in agreement with your leaders. I'm in agreement with your mission. I am with you. We are fighting in the same army. We are contending on the same team. Is that how you view your relationship here? Or are you just here to take in a service? God says throughout his word, membership is critically important. Now you say, you say, the Bible never says thou shalt join and be a member of a church. You're absolutely right. The Bible also doesn't say anything about the word Trinity. But we believe Jesus and God and the Spirit to be three in one. The Bible never talks about Sunday school, but we do that. The Bible doesn't talk about missions agencies, but we do that. Why? Because we cannot fulfill what the Bible says without building structures and things to maintain those and to achieve those. So what might people say about membership? Some might be reluctant to it. Why would you be reluctant to church membership? Well, number one, you're brand new to the church, and you should be reluctant to joining the church too quickly. So those who are new to the church, have been here a handful of weeks, maybe a month or two, take some time to get to know us and understand who we are and what we're all about. We're welcoming you. We're glad you're here. But what we would ask is at some point dig in deeper about who we are and ask the question, "Can I join them? Can I lock arms with them?" Number 2, you're ignorant to this idea. You're like, "I didn't even know there was church membership. I thought I was a member." Well, you're not. In the truest sense of the words, again, we're glad you're here, but we want you to learn more about this. It's time to rediscover church. And so every fourth Sunday of the month during the second service, we have classes that talk about what it means to be a member. We want you to join that. Number three, you might be critical. You might say that it's not mentioned in the Bible. You may come up and say, my faith is private and all of that. So here is my word to you. The Bible gives biblical reasons for church membership. Let's go through them very quickly. The example of the early church. The church seemed to constitute uh, church membership. How so? They added to their number. They added to their number. Again and again we see that, well, whose number? The church's number. They had a role. They had a, a membership. They had someone who said something that said, these people are with us and these people are not. What is that? Was it that they just hung around? Do you think only the people, those 3,000 were there on the day of Pentecost? Were the three 3,000 people who got baptized? No, there were lots of people. But there were 3,000 that got added to their number. Also, we see in all of the letters, the church that met here, the church that met here, there was a specified church. How about the existence of church government? The Bible says that churches should have pastors and elders and deacons. How do you get them? Who determines who those people are? How do you go about putting those people into their offices? you got to have something. you got to have something that says it. You know. So l- let's do this. If, you don't, if you're critical of church membership, then I want you to go appoint elders and deacons at the local Jewel over here. I want you to stand in Jewel after church and say, all right, we need to appoint some elders and deacons. So let's get together. Who would like to serve here at Jewel as an elder and deacon? See how that works for you. Church membership says, here are the people this is the process and this is how you get to having pastors elders and deacons how about for the pastors elders and deacons who's in their flock so you call me one day and you say hey come quickly pastor we've got a critical issue here and I say you know what call pastor Jim Nicodem from Christ Community Church he'll take care of you but he's not my pastor pastor Uh uh-huh uh-huh you believe in church membership the second you say Tim you're my pastor you believe in church membership well it gives you the rights and can everybody say that can I go into everybody's life and everybody's place and say I'm your pastor the answer is no why because at heart you believe in church membership you're just not acting it out you're not being you're not being uh, thoughtful in your living it out how about church discipline can we just willy-nilly just start putting people under church discipline all right let's go to the yellow pages who can we discipline today all right ted johnson come on down we discipline you it doesn't work but the bible says there are times where we are to bring believers to the church and that we remove them from us Well, how do you do that if you don't have church membership? And finally, the exhortation of mutual care. How do you live out the one another commands? To who are you to do that? Is Jesus holding you accountable to love everyone, to bear with one another, to serve one another? So when you get to heaven... When you get to heaven, you're looking forward to well-done, good, and faithful servant. And Jesus says, well, hey, but you didn't take care of that person uh, over there in Indiana. That's who I was talking about. You didn't care for them. You didn't minister to them. Church membership says, I'm committing, God, before you and men, that I'm going to minister to this group of people that you've told me to assemble with and not give up assembling together with. So you say, critical individual on church a church membership? It's not in the Bible. You're right. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the Bible. And so, we want to invite you to connect with a church. And if you can't do that here for any reason, that's okay. Connect somewhere. Connect somewhere. But the guidepost, the signpost that God has laid forth is that there's baptism, there's communion, and there's church membership. And it is altogether time for us to rediscover that. And here's why. Because God's commanded it, yes. And he's commanded it for this reason. We would be lost without it. We wouldn't know if we were doing what God wanted us to. We wouldn't know if we were heading in the right direction. We wouldn't know if we're any closer to our destination or not. So God put on our journey, on the interstate between here and heaven, He put signposts and said, you're doing the right thing. You're heading in the right direction. And with every one of these steps, you're a little closer to getting to be with me in heaven for all eternity.